We are starting a series today as we start Advent called Let Earth Receive Her Long-Awaited King. And when you think about the story of Christmas, Jesus is rightfully the main character. Makes sense. It's about him. It's about his birth, about the significance of it, the wonder of God becoming us, one of us. And Mary will follow him in this story. She also gets a ton of attention. God chose her to carry Jesus, God the Son. And her responses are amazing in their posture of the surrender to God, in her trust of him, in her praise of him. We have an entire song where she praises God in Luke's gospel. And then there's Joseph, the adoptive father of Jesus. Joseph doesn't say very much. In fact, throughout the story, he's entirely silent. His actions do the speaking. Quiet Joseph might be what you call him. And yet he winds up playing the significant role in the Christmas story. Joseph does all of his talking through his life, through his actions. And it's his speech, as one scholar puts it, that is to do the will of God. And as it turns out, doing the will of God didn't look the way Joseph thought it would in his life. It was challenging, and it turned out to be still even better than anyone could have imagined, but it was costly. Today we're going to look at Joseph's response to the Christmas story, and over the coming weeks we'll look at the different responses to the story of Christmas. This week we're looking at Joseph's, and so we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18. This is what it says. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this season which reminds us that you have come to us in Jesus, that you have made yourself known in him. And we pray that this morning as we look at the story of Joseph and his response and what you do in it, that we might have ears to hear and a heart to respond to what it is you might want to do in our lives. We pray, Lord, that we might be able to enter in or re-enter into the story of Christmas and the wonder of it all. And we pray this for your glory and our joy. Amen. The implications of the angel's words to Joseph make this time of the year that we're in, entering into wonderful. The most wonderful times of year. And yet there's something really mysterious about it as well. And I want to spend some time looking at the arrival of the king, Jesus, from this perspective of Joseph. And in preparing this, there's uh, one person that I've uh, found really helpful. His name is Daryl Johnson. 
So let's look at Joseph. When we first meet him in this story, when we meet Joseph, he's devastated and betrayed. Why? Feels devastated and betrayed. Well, enter, in, in, enter into his life for a moment with me. Joseph lived a very different, uh, in a diff- very different world than you and I do. Romance and marriage were very different than the way we experience those things today. Joseph was betrothed to Mary. In those days, girls were married between 13 and 14 years of age, and boys were a little older. It wasn't like today at all. There was this marriage system that existed where parents would choose your spouse. And there was this one-year betrothal period during which you were legally married, but you couldn't consummate or live together until the wedding night. And that was the period that Joseph found himself in. Legally married, but they're not living together. And so he would have been busy preparing a home for this new life to come with him and Mary, a space for the two of them, working, building, preparing a home to start their future together. And you can imagine the anticipation he must have felt in that period, the joy of thinking of what was to come, the excitement of this temporary period of waiting that it would soon be over. The excitement of being able to express the love and care he felt for Mary. The dreams he had of what life together would be like, of sharing life together. Joseph had plans like all of us do. Joseph was planning for life with Mary, not planning to add this room for a baby. That wasn't on his radar at all. So when he finds out Mary is pregnant, all of that vision he has comes to a halt. As far as he can see, the only way Mary gets pregnant as if he's been unfaithful to him. That's why Joseph is devastated. The future he envisioned is gone. And those of you who have been abandoned or betrayed may have an idea of the kind of emotions that Joseph would have likely felt. There was nothing else that could make sense of this moment for Joseph outside of unfaithfulness. The whole Christmas story doesn't read like anything else that we read today, and not especially when it comes to this virgin birth. Joseph didn't have that on his radar at all. The virgin conception was as foreign to him as it is to many of us today. Mary didn't come to him and say, hey, I'm pregnant. And so he responded, oh, of course. Yeah, like, uh, you know, this is a virgin birth, right? That's what it has to be. Didn't think like that at all. And J.R. Packer, he'll note in his book, Knowing God, the real difficulty, the supreme mystery with which the gospel confronts us lies not in the Good Friday message of atonement or in the Easter message of resurrection, but in the, Christian, the Christmas message of incarnation. This is the real stumbling block of Christianity. It's challenging and it's wondrous and mysterious that God would leave his throne in heaven and become one of us, walk among us, suffer like us, and for us. It's challenging Because for many people, their understanding of God has no room for Jesus. And similarly, our understanding of Jesus has no room for God. But we're told something so important about Joseph. We're told that Joseph was righteous. In our translation that we read from today in the NIV, it says that Joseph was just. We see that in verse 19. when it says, Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. We see, sorry, in the ESV that that we're told Joseph was just. And this word in Greek is dikaios, literally meaning righteous. It can be rendered just, 
righteous, referring to abiding by the will of God as revealed in Scripture. And Mary and Joseph, they lived in this deeply conservative world, a patriarchal world that was steeped in honor-shame dynamics. And adultery would have been deeply embarrassing, an act mired in lasting shame, gossip, and judgment. And for Joseph to be rightly related to God would mean to abide by God's will, as revealed at that time in the Old Testament, which would have meant divorcing her. Adultery breaks the covenant of marriage. Divorce would have simply finalized that. And although Israel no longer punished adulterers by death, because the Romans had stripped them of that power, Joseph knew that Mary would have been seen as an immoral woman who deserved to be stoned. And Joseph wanted none of that for her. Hence, Joseph is thinking and navigating through this tension. I want to abide by the law, but I care about her, and I don't want any of that for her. I don't want her to walk with that shame. But he's still grieved. He's, this, there's this mix of emotions, of grief and upset. Joseph cares deeply about being rightly related to God, but he doesn't want to risk Mary being publicly shamed. So he needed to find a way in his mind to uh, divorce her in such a way that would be discreet. This is real righteousness at work. It's a kind of righteousness and justice that isn't about retribution. You harm me, you, you hurt me, so I'm going to make you hurt. This isn't about some equal application to a law. I pay taxes, so you have to pay taxes. Now, what we see in Joseph is something higher, something greater, some kind of righteousness that demonstrates compassion for the weak and the exhausted. He sees Mary, and though he's hurt and grieved, he's thinking... I want nothing that would actually cause her to have to live through the pain of this throughout her life. Joseph looked beyond the penalties of the law in order to honor God, but also seek to show mercy. See, that's truth and grace at work. How would Joseph walk that line, though? How would he do it? What would he do now that this vision that he had had disappeared? As Joseph was grappling with this loss of this future with him and Mary, as he wrestled with trying to honor God and still graciously shield Mary from public shame, God made known to him this wondrous mystery of Christmas, and he revealed his will to Joseph. And that's what we're told in verse 20, where it said, But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Don't be afraid. If you know the Christmas story, you know that every time an angel appears in the Christmas story, one of the first things the angel will say is, don't be afraid. And each time that is followed by some new information for whoever's receiving it. Joseph, don't be afraid. Why did Joseph need to hear this? Well, one, whenever an angel appears, there is this aspect where coming from the presence of God, there's this fear of recognizing this holy being. But another part of it is what's at work in Joseph, the fear of honoring God, but also wanting to protect Mary. This angel could see all that was happening. God could see all that is happening, but Joseph couldn't, and he needed God's perspective in what was unfolding in his life and in the world, because from his vantage point, he couldn't see what it meant. Don't be afraid to marry Mary. It's not that she's been unfaithful. It's that God has been faithful to his promises to come and rescue his people. Take Mary home as your wife. Your long-awaited king is coming. 
Don't be afraid her pregnancy has actually been initiated by the Holy Spirit. This strange and wonderful thing is the work of the Spirit. Don't be afraid, Joseph. You're not breaking the Torah by marrying her. You're not going against the will of God by marrying her. You're doing the very thing God wants you to do. When you marry her, you will remain rightly related. So what is the Holy Spirit doing in the womb of Mary? Well, Matthew's actually already given us a hint in verse 18. And we lose some of that in our English translations. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. That word birth is literally genesis in Greek. Geneseo. This is how the genesis of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. If you read of your footnote in uh, the NIV Bible, it'll read, or the origin of Jesus, the Messiah, was like this. Matthew is making a claim that something like Genesis 1, where we see the Spirit at work creating something out of nothing, is happening here. John Marcomo will note, in the same way the Spirit hovered over the waters in an act of creation, the same Spirit hovered over Mary's womb in an act of recreation. There is this recreation at work here, a new beginning for humanity that God is birthing. That same Spirit is now at work in Mary. In the womb of Mary, the Spirit working to bring about a redemption and a restoration of God's creation. And it all hinges on this infant, Jesus. Listen to the angel in verse 21 and 22. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, believe it or not, Jesus was a common name in the first century. In first century Palestine, I should say. It was Yeshua. And so if you've wondered why so many Latinos like to name their kids Jesus, just know they weren't the first community to be doing it. It was really common in the first century. It just so happens we don't think that's really normal to name your kids Jesus. And I get it. None of our kids are named Jesus either. But the Latinos were not the first people to make that a norm, okay? So... The names were significant. They meant something. And Jesus' name means God saves, or literally Yahweh saves. The angel says you were to name him Yahweh saves. What does Yahweh save his people from? From sin. See, the message of Christmas is that God has become one of us in order to save us from our sin. To our modern ears, sin sounds odd and largely foreign. It's not part of our, our, our common vocabulary. But odd doesn't mean wrong or foreign doesn't mean false. Sin is present throughout the story of Scripture, not because it's the main character, but because it's a key problem. Sin is present throughout the stories. And the, and the word that the biblical authors use to talk about the brokenness of humanity is sin. Sin describes a spiritual and relational reality. Sin basically means to miss the mark. If you were an archer and you were aiming for the bullseye, to sin is to miss the mark of the bullseye. We've missed the bullseye. Because every human being has missed the mark, we failed to hit that bullseye. You know, what's the bullseye that we're told in Scripture? Well, if you go all the way to the first pages of the Bible, very first page, in Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27, the bullseye was to image God, to reflect God's love, his kindness, his creativity, his truthfulness, his generosity. 
But more specifically, to image God was to honor God and to love others. And all of us then have failed at some point in our lives to love God and love others. All of us have missed that mark. Sin doesn't only, though, refer to this failure to hit the bullseye, to hit the mark. Tim Mackey will highlight two other components that are really helpful. Sin also refers to our deep-rooted desires and selfish urges that compel us to act for our own benefit at the expense of others. And it refers to our ability to deceive ourselves and spin illusions to redefine our bad decisions as good ones. In other words, when the Bible speaks about sin, it's talking about failing to love God and others, our failure to image Him, the selfish urges that drive us to prioritize our wants, preferences, and thoughts to the detriment of others, and the practice of justifying ourselves and others, uh, and justifying to ourselves and to others these poor decisions where we fail to love others and hurt others instead, calling our failures successes and our successes failures. This is why in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul in Romans describes sin as a powerful force or a uh, force that rules humans, saying in Romans 5, verse 21, that sin reigned in death. Through this word, sin, the authors of the Bible are giving us a robust and piercing diagnosis for what actually ails humanity. Sin explains why there's so much social conflict, strife in our world. Sin leads to this disintegration of our relationships because sin will damage our relationship with God, ourselves, and with others. There's this relational debt that happens whenever we wrong others where there's this something that needs to be made right. Like when in anger, I say something hurtful to a friend. I owe them something to make that relationship right again. Living with sin doesn't lead to spiritual or physical or personal or social flourishing, but to conflict and pain, the absence of peace. And where there's strife and hostility and hatred, you can be sure that there's going to be sin at work. Sin explains why there's so much death in our world. At the core of it, sin is living without reference to God. It's living without reference to uh, God and instead living in reference to what we believe is best, true, right, and good. And when you live like that, you're rejecting the author of life, God himself. The natural result of rejecting the author of life is death. The Bible teaches us that idea when it says that the wages of sin or the reward for sin is death. Because one of the things you stop, one of the things that happens when you stop living in reference to the author of life is that you begin to devalue life in others, in yourself. Death abounds in a world of sin. But here's what's remarkable about the story of Christmas. The Christmas story announces that God has become human to rescue us from all of our sin in Jesus. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. God who saves us from our sins. That's Jesus. That Jesus has become one of us. And he did not fail to love God or others. He never sinned. And the way he will save us is actually by taking responsibility for humanity's history of failing to love God and love others. He never sinned. Jesus takes this responsibility, though, for your failures, my failures, to love God and love others. He came to live for you and I, and he died for our sins. And yet he was raised from the dead to offer you and I the gift of his life that covers all 
of the damage that you and I have done in our relationship to God and others. He was raised so that sin would no longer rule or reign in us, but that Christ would, which is why Jesus throughout his life and ministry, I'm so glad she's so moved by the Lord's words. It's beautiful. This is why Jesus went in his life and in his ministry. He will say, I have come to bring life and life to the full. I didn't come to take life, but to give life. I have not come to condemn the world for their failures, but to rescue and heal them from their sin. In John 3.17, we'll hear it as, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Joseph would not recognize all of this as he initially heard this message, nor would he understand the fullness of what the angel was speaking to him. But his actions tell us that this message, the mystery of Christmas, inspired him to live into the story, though he didn't fully get it all. Joseph is inspired to, we're told, take Mary home as his wife, in verse 24. Joseph attached himself to Mary. All the things that people would be associating and assuming about Mary as they started to do the math on, hey, you guys moved in together at this point, but... Baby Jesus shows up a month later? How does that work? He was attaching himself to all of that. All the things that people would have assumed and said about Mary were now going to be part of his life. They were going to become his own. He was entering into that, knowing that. This is the will of God for you. Attach yourself to Mary. Marry her. But then we're also told, give him the name Jesus. That's the second thing that Joseph is inspired to do. Give him the name Jesus. Jesus. In the first century, naming, uh, in the first century for Jews, naming your son was a legal recognition that that baby was indeed your child. So Joseph, in naming Jesus, is actually adopting him as his son. He is attaching himself to Jesus and all the things that people would have said about Jesus as an illegitimate child would have been associated now with Joseph. What God was calling Joseph to do was even harder than divorce. He was calling him to welcome Jesus into his life as his own. There was this great risk involved in actually being obedient to God's call. And yet we're not even told that Joseph like hummed and hawed about this, wrestled with this. We're told that Joseph went and did it. It's this powerful picture of this longing and desire to be rightly related to God and then what it ends up looking like. It's costly. Daryl Johnson, he will write, When Jesus Christ enters our lives, we cannot expect things to remain as they were. His mere presence begins to change everything. He calls us into a different way of being and living, into his different way of being and living. To embrace the mystery of Christmas and live it means being open to having our private universes turned upside down. God was calling Joseph to welcome Jesus into his life, to attach himself. But here is the thing. See, we, we can recognize the cost for Joseph. And you, when you read the Gospels, you see there's different moments where Jesus' reputation carried this idea of him being an illegitimate child and what people would say about him. And what we're told, though, and what we see throughout the story of Scripture is that when we attach ourselves to Jesus, Jesus attaches himself to us forever. 
What we see in Joseph is in attaching himself to Jesus. Jesus attaches himself forever to him. And this, I think, is an invitation for every disciple of Jesus to attach ourselves to him, to accept the risk of identifying ourselves with Jesus, of not being understood, of identifying with Jesus as God with skin on, who's come to rescue you, our world, our community. Accept the risk that comes with following in his footsteps, recognizing there will be moments that do not make sense. As I studied and read through this, I I couldn't help but notice the parallels to this moment and the implications of it, and then what Jesus will teach in the parables of the kingdom. When he talks about this treasure that's so precious that you'll sell everything, your wealth, your reputation, all of it, so that you can have that one pearl. And I wonder, we don't know, we're not told, and we won't know on this side of heaven, but I wonder if part of this picture of what Jesus is preaching, of who, when he told these parables, who was he thinking of? Like, I wondered, was his father, Joseph, one of those? Understanding the cost of what it meant for Joseph in his life, or his mom, and what it meant for her. There will be moments where following Jesus won't make sense, and it'll cost us something. Sometimes just an inconvenience, sometimes far more than that. You see that throughout church history. You see that in the story of Scripture. But the gift of attaching yourself to Jesus is that you experience the God who hovered over the waters of creation and who hovered over the womb of Mary begin a new work in you, in your life, so that you become this new creation. This is why in the New Testament we read, Paul will say, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has gone, but the new has come. Why? Well, it's because you become one who is filled with the very life of Jesus. Because you attached yourself to him. And one of the questions that you and I have to navigate as we go and walk through this Christmas season is, are we willing to risk attaching ourselves to him? Like, actually. Are we actually willing to take the cost of what it means for our lives, but also recognizing the gift that we receive in Jesus. Are we willing to receive the King? Father in heaven, we come before you, and we've heard the story of you sending your Son, Jesus, and in Jesus becoming one of us, becoming human, God with skin on making your heart, your will, your ways, your truth and grace known to us. And we see in Joseph, though he's silent throughout the story, his actions speak of this hunger to be rightly related to you and to others. We see them and hear the message of this king who has come to rescue us from our sin from our failures to love others and to love you. And we ask, Lord, that we would be willing to attach ourselves to you the way Joseph does. And we confess there are things that we're afraid of about the cost of what it'll mean, of you up, turning upside down those interior parts of our lives that will inevitably bleed into the exterior things that people see. But we ask God for the courage to respond in faith. Help us to, this Christmas season, walk with this wonder of what it means to know that you have come 
and have begun to do your glorious work of rescuing, redeeming, renewing, restoring creation. And we pray, God, that we wouldn't lose sight of it in the midst of the busyness of the season, just live as if we were just consumers all the time throughout Christmas, Lord, but rather that we might be able to recognize why this time of the year is such a gift. Thank you for the life that we have through Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. We're going to take communion now, and if you